Hey, on today's episode, Don't Stab the Corpse, the story of the momentous showdown between the Roman Emperor Vespasian and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and its lasting effects today, exploring King David's death and how Torah achieved equality, liberty, and fraternity centuries before the French. I'm Moshe Shomer, this is the Chavrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. Back on to Letter in the Scroll. Took a week hiatus to delve into the depths of Purim. And picking right off, picking right back up from where we left off. Left off, we had described how the synagogue is one of Jewry's greatest creations. It sustained the Jewish people in exile for almost 2,000 years now, keeping them together only an agent ever to survive without a land, a country, political power dispersed throughout the world. And the shul, the synagogue, became our home, spiritual home, our educational citadel, our welfare center, and all three aspects, the core aspects in, in Jewish life. And wherever they were, that was the microcosm of the Jewish people as a whole, a fragment of Yerushalayim, of Jerusalem, sitting and studying as if they were back at Sinai. Scattered descendants of a once compact nation gathering and reconstituting themselves as a single people united cross boundaries by a shared history and a shared hope. Right, building communities around the shul, a shared space the same way Shabbat was the shared space in time. Here it's a shared space in geography. There was one other transformational mo- movement moment moment that sparked the movement. And this is recorded in the Torah in Tractate Gitzen on page 56. And it's the negotiation between Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the great leader of the Jewish people, also the leader of the moderate faction during the time of the Great Depression, the Great Rebellion against the Great Depression. So the Jewish people were primarily split along two factions. One, the moderates felt that the Roman oppression that sucked the life out of Jewish people that was starving them and literally sucking the life out of them. And Rabbi Yochanan Zakai and the moderates felt that it was best to negotiate and try to alleviate some of the pressure um, and, and deal under the Romans. And the zealots felt that they should go to war and fight the Romans. And Rabbi Yochanan Zakai gets smuggled out out of Jerusalem to go meet the leader of the Roman army, Roman army, Vespasian, the future emperor. And fascinating, he's actually smuggled out by his nephew, who was the one of the big, big leaders in the zealot movement, who was initially a big, a big uh, proponent of fighting back. And Rabbi Yechemen Zakai uh, convinced his nephew to join his, his way of thinking. His name was Abba Serka. Abba Serka, he was the head of the, the zealots in Jerusalem and Yerushalayim, and Rabbi Yochanan Zakai summons him in secret, and he he, t- he tells him, "How long are you going to continue this way? People are starving. Like, what are we going to do?" And Abba Sirka Sikra says to him, "What am I supposed to do? If I say anything, if I speak out, they're going to kill me." Um, so he says, "Become a double agent. I right? stay within the zealots, but work on my behalf. Help me uh, go speak to Vespasian, the the Roman ruler, and and negotiate." 
So he comes up with a plan, Abba Sikra. He says, make believe you're sick. Put out the word that you're sick um, and have a whole bunch of all your students come and, and find out and ask about you as if you were dying. So pretend you're dying, then take something that smells really bad. You take the, the carcass of an animal and put it next to you. And and people are going to start saying they're going to they're going to realize, you know, they come the next morning, they're going to say that you're dead and have your students come in and, and hold you. I don't let anybody else take you out of your bed because they knew that dead people, dead weight, the expression dead weight weighs more than somebody that's alive. So have only people that are in on it uh, carry you out and uh, and and smuggle you out of the city. There's a halakha, there's a law that you can't bury dead people in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem outside the, the walled city of Jerusalem, even until today, nobody's buried in the old city. So fine, that's the plan. So they do that. They come along, they get to the gate. And when they reach the gate, the guards uh, wanted to uh, stab the coffin to make sure that they, they were suspicious. They wanted to stab his coffin. And Abba Serka, his nephew, who's on their side, at least in their eyes, says to them, well, how can we do this? The Romans, are the Romans going to say the Jews stabbed their rabbi? Like, this, this is a chalashah, we can't do this. Uh, so he said, okay, fine, so let's push it around, you know, push around the coffin. Let's see if he cries out. Uh, he said, well, and, and that's any better? You're going to say you shoved the rabbi? Um, so they finally uh, open the gates, and, and he convinces them to open the gates, and he gets out and he gets to Vespasian. And Vespasian... Yeah, he greets Vespasian and he says, Shalma Allah Malka, Shalma Allah Malka, peace be upon you, King, King. And Vespasian says to him, I should kill you for two reasons. Number one is because I'm not a king and you're mocking me by calling me a king. And number two, if I am a king, then why didn't you come till now? So he says on your first thing, um, yeah, you're not a king right now, but you are going to be a king. You're destined to be a king based on a prophecy by Isaiah. Isaiah foretold the fall of... Uh, the siege of Jerusalem that's going to fall to a, a mighty one. And a mighty one is, is a king. So he's a king in, in Torah, Torah uh, scripture. It's uh, a ruler. Adir, a king, is uh, one of the same. And he says, to your second point, why did I come to, to now? Because there's under siege and I would have been killed um, if I uh, would have been killed by the zealots, if I would have tried to escape. And as they're, they're talking... Uh, he gets a messenger from Rome. Spacing gets a messenger that says that the the case that the Caesar has died and you have been selected to become the king. You, he says his prediction came true in, in, in live time and he was super impressed and he told him, ask me what you want, I'll, I'll grant you a request. What request do you have? And, uh, in this crucial decision, this moment, one request that he could have, and it was controversial. Uh, his response, his response was, Yavne Give me Yavne and its sages. Give me the academy of Yavne, the yeshiva Yavne and its sages. And the Torah records, the Talmud repeats that, he, or criticizes him seemingly. He, what he should have said was to spare Yerushalayim, to, to, to stop the conquest, to stop the oppression. To, he had one request, blank uh, blank check. Why don't you just say, a spare Yerushalayim? Um, and the Gemara explains that was of the opinion that they wouldn't have granted such a, such a request. And they wouldn't have gotten anything out of it. And therefore, it was better to at least get something. 
instead of rolling the dice and, and trying for the whole thing, which um, he didn't feel was realistic to let up, which leads to another whole interesting tangent of trying to get too much and perhaps sacrificing uh, the little that you can get. You see this a lot just in, in personal growth, right? I need to start this new habit. If I don't get this routine, I'm not eating completely off sugar and off carbs and completely eradicate my laziness and my uh, tendencies by bad habits, then forget it. And sometimes the, we, we sacrifice the good for the sake of the perfect. And perhaps we should go and to, uh, the, the, the Shulchan Aruch says, code of Jewish law, tov It is better to supplicate a little bit with kavana, with intent, right? So by davening, it's better to daven with a little kavana, a little bit with, with intent, with mindfulness, being present in the moment, than to do a whole bunch, but not having the proper intent. This actually uh, came up earlier today on a WhatsApp group with a whole bunch of uh, rabbis all across America. And the discussion was tachnon. Tachnon is part of davening. Uh, right after the Amidah, the tachnon uh, prayer that in many circles, mostly Hasidic circles, it's omitted uh, whenever there is a some cause of celebration. So for sure, in a major holiday, things like that. But even if there's a minor cause to perhaps celebrate. It's the uh, anniversary of something joyous that happened that day, or it's the uh, anniversary of the yard site of a great person, and they'll skip Tachnan. And the question is, so why today were they skipping Tachnan? It's the 17th day of Adar. Why are they today skipping Tachnan? So I found the source in the Tamei Haman Hagen, Sefer in Tamei Haman Hagen, which it means in English, the reasons for the customs. The reasons for the custom, it quotes from safe called Maise Yechil, which was printed in the town Satmer in Romania, Hungary, in the late 1800s, that explains the reason is because the the Torah, the Talmud, has a thought that perhaps Purim could really be celebrated on the 17th day of Adar. For whatever reason, you can't do it on the 15th because it falls out on Shabbos and maybe it doesn't get out to the outskirts of the city, so there'll be some circles. There was a possibility that maybe people would be reading it on the reading Megillah on the 17th day of Adar, which is today, and therefore... Hasidic circles custom is not to say Tachnan today because it almost could have been, maybe there was potential for it to have been Purim. Now, this is a drop out of the box, right? <laughs> because it's not, you actually can't celebrate Purim today as as in the conclusion of the, it was just a, a, a potential thought. But the idea is, says the Maise Echil quoted in this, in this Sefer, in this book that I found, that any time we could potentially find a reason to omit it, and it's a good reason we should omit it because tov ma'apekavana. It is better to have a little bit with intent, and sometimes it could be overwhelming for a person to go through a whole shacharis, an entire shacharis. There's a lot to say. There's a lot to think about. There, there's there's heavy and 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 important and vital and amazing stuff, and therefore let's omit it and and really double down and, and refocus our energies and and minds into what we're already saying and you know that, that causes a big uh whiplash because some circles are like oh you're you're too innovative you're too uh 
the slippery slope. That was the response. So, you know, it's a very slippery slope argument. But that's that's the the, the model here from Rabbi Yochanan ben in the Gemara. Tov ma'at, tov kavana, tafasta merubalot tafasta is another Aramaic expression that the Torah in the, throughout the Talmud says. Tafasta merubalot tafasta. If you try to grab too much, then lo tafasta you end up with nothing. And that's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, teinli yavne v'chachamel. Give me Yavne, the Academy Yavne, the Yeshiva Yavne, and it's sages. The question is, what is this? What, what's Rabbi Yochanan Zakei asking? What's the idea? What's the message here? Rabbi Sachs explains chapter 12, Truth Lived, in the letter in the scroll, that once again, what's happening here is a crisis in Jewish history is being met by an ancient institution. To defend a country, you need an army, but to defend an identity, you need a school. And what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh is asking is for Judaism to become the religion of the book, not the sword. When faced with oppression, when faced with war, he says, give me a yeshiva. From the earliest times, the greatest leaders of the Jewish people predicated their survival on and, and their mission on the most substantial of all things, on the Torah, on the text. The covenant at, at Sinai at Sinai, they more than turned they are the common expression, people of the book. It's not the people of the book. That 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 that's only the surface level. It's a nation whose very identity depends on that book. Not just like, oh, they happen to like to read, they happen to like ideas, but their whole identity is tied up with it. It's one and the same. It's it's both their constitution as a nation, the Torah is the Jewish constitution, it's also their law as a functioning society, it's their history as a people. It's, it's their whole vocation and their belief system. And it's a physical reminder of the covenant with Hashem, like the Gemara and Yavama says. Talmud says that it's like the ketubah, it's like the marriage document. It's a physical reminder. So the Torah learning became the hope of the Jewish people. And throughout the, the five books of the Torah itself, in the, the Mosaic family, in the times of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the family itself was the educational institution. And throughout the exile, the First, the synagogue was added as the institution. And then the following period between the, the Hanukkah story, the Maccabees and their uprising and the fall of Jerusalem, really saw the emergence of three intellectual centers. Number one was the yeshiva, the, the university, the, the academy for higher study, the Beit Midrash, the base Medrash, which was the, the gathering place for adult education, and the, and the school, the school for, for young children. So, what we have here, and you look in history, the, the Jewish, uh, for the the first ever, first ever system, the world's first ever system of universal free and compulsory education. It's recorded in the Talmud and tracked above a Basra on page 22, Rabbi Shua Megamla establishes, establishes a comprehensive network of primary schools throughout Judea, throughout Israel. Every single town, there's a whole system. How to support it, how to pay for it, how to hire teachers. And it's something that in America, in some states, only became a thing in the late 1900s, late 20th century. This is going on thousands and thousands of years ago. Hundreds and hundreds, centuries and centuries ago. Um, and beyond the school, there was the the weekly adult encounter with learning in, in shul. Everybody was learning the Parsha, and again, Monday and Thursday, the base Medrash. And there were great yeshivas, the houses of Hill and Shammai, base Hill, base Shammai, the house of Hill. 
What does it mean, the house of Hill, the house of Shammai? Is that all the students would gather there and learn. And the Academy at Yavna, which is tr- the training grounds for uh, Judaism's sages, the Chachamim, the, the Rabbanim, the rabbis, that for the next 2,000 years would become not only its teachers, but its leaders too. I've, Plato had this concept of a philosopher king, right? the thinker and the leader at the same time. And there was nothing remotely like this educational infrastructure in the ancient world. Even the Greeks, they had great academies, but they were confined to an elite. And it achieves much more than just having that everybody's literate. But as Paul Johnson, the historian, describes it, it becomes the, the an ancient and highly efficient social machine for the production of intellectuals. So the story of the Jewish people, it's really, if you think about it, from the temple and on, from in the diaspora and exile, it's the story of one of the greatest love affairs of all time. A love between a people and their book, the Torah. If you look in rabbinic literature, you look in Perkei Avos, the sixth chapter of Perkei Avos, it's like an extended poem. <laughs> it literally is like a poem in praise of the Torah and of a life of learning. Zohar calls it, it's the architecture of the very world of, of creation. It's letters of fire on, on fire, black fire on white fire. The Ramban mystical tradition reports that it's nothing less than the single extended name of Hashem. It's Hashem's name in, in letters. Rabbi Akiva calls it the very air that Jews breathe. And his example is, the Talmud relays this in Tractate Brachot, that he's dealing with a uh, non-believer, a critic, a uh, antagonist, whoever it is, heretic, who's uh, challenging him about the nature of Torah. And he, he says, let me give you a parable. Imagine a fox talking to a fish. And he's talking to the fish about, oh, you need food, you need food. Right? The fish is, is going through a, a drought. He wants some food. The fox is trying to tell the fish, come out, come onto the dry land, and you have some fish. You have some food here on the dry land. Look, he brings a whole basket of, of food. And the fish responds to the fox. He says, yeah, if I come out of the... The water, then I'm going to die. Uh, I'm not going to need the food. My my whole very existence is in the water. So too says Rabbi Akiva. Our whole source of existence is the Torah. And therefore, Rabbi Akiva, in his own life, embodies this. Not only taking on Torah as his way of life at the age of 40, but eventually teaching it publicly against capital punishment. The rule at the time, the Romans ruled... No one's allowed to teach Torah publicly. Or he gathers people in a public square and teaches Torah and he gets caught and he gets killed through it publicly. His skin is flayed with hot copper uh, metal stakes. They, they comb through his, uh, his skin and kill him. Murder. Akiva says, this is it's my very way of life. It's the air I breathe. It's like the fish in water. You can't, I, I can't stop it. Baruch Bar. Leibowitz, Rachbar Leibowitz, one of the great heads of yeshivas in uh, Poland, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Rachbar, primary disciple of Rabbi Chaim of Salvechik of Brisk. Rachbar asks on this Gemara, how is Rabbi Kiva able to do this? How is he able to teach Torah publicly, risking his life? There's only three cardinal sins that you're supposed to risk your life for, killing somebody else, idolatry and adultery. This is not one of them teaching Torah, right? So what is it? Well, why is he doing this publicly, right? Those three, of course. Why are those three, the three cardinal sins? We mentioned the idea. I'm not sure. 
we ever did it on the podcast. But the idea is that the whole purpose of the world, is the world stands on three pillars. Torah, Avodah, Gemilas, Chasadim, on personal growth, on our relationship with ourselves, on interpersonal growth, relationship with other people, and growth, spiritual growth, our relationship with Hashem. So those are the three pillars. So the worst of those three, the things that aren't, if we're going to have to do them, then it goes against the very existence of the creation. Personal growth, the worst the worst uh, lust that I could give into is adultery, interpersonal murder, and spiritual idolatry. So Asher Baruch Bar, this isn't one of those three. This isn't one of the three. So why was there I keep it doing it? Explains <laughs> Baruch because... He's, through the story, the story goes that uh, he was at a convention, and, and somebody was getting up at the convention. It was a convention trying to raise money to support Torah institutions. And somebody came out and said, Torah is like oxygen. It's the very oxygen that we breathe. And Rabbi Bar got up and he interrupted and he said, no, 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 you got it wrong. Torah is more than oxygen. Torah, Torah is life itself. It's life itself. It's not that you're alive and you need oxygen to stay alive. It is life. Therefore, Rabbi Akiva understood that. That <laughs> it's not even a question. It's not. It's not like okay, I'm alive and now do I give up my life for one of these three things? This is life itself. They were threatening life itself. Rabbi Akiva says, I can't stop that. That's part and parcel. That's it's more than oxygen. So th- th- this this is the the symbol the symbol of the the affair between. The Torah and the Jewish people, the love that's there, that it's life itself. The story goes, again, I think this is a Gemara in, in Brachas, Mar in Brachas, uh, King David. King David, who for so long was the symbol of the warrior, right? Slaying Goliath. David slays Goliath. He vanquishes the, the, the people that had taken over the Jewish indigenous land and and they they now are finally back on their homeland in Israel, and King David was was that symbol of of might. And the Torah tells us that what happened in the end of his life after his retirement, King David was the symbol of learning Torah. That is, he he asks Hashem, he says, "What I'm gonna, what am I gonna die? I want to know when's my when's my last day." And Hashem refuses to answer. He says, "But I'll tell you which day of the week it's gonna be. It's gonna be on Shabbos." I mean, Shabbos, but he doesn't tell him which Shabbos. So every Shabbos thereafter, King David spends his entire day learning Torah. Entire day. From, from candle lighting till Havdal, he's learning Torah. And when the moment came for him to die, the angel of death comes and he finds him learning Torah. Uh, he's not pausing and he can't, he can't, uh, he can't take him. He can't take him because Torah learning is life itself and therefore death cannot occur while uh, the Torah learnings happen. And therefore, he comes up with a strategy. He uh, goes over to a nearby tree and he starts shaking it and uh, making make a lot of noise. So David is distracted. He looks up to see the noise. Boom. He gets him. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's what happened. He climbed up the, to a ladder to see the window to see what the noise is. And the ladder falls and he dies. Right? For, for a second, no Torah was coming for his lips. That moment he dies. So that's the shift. The shift here from the military hero, the victor of greatest battles, becoming a sage, a new kind of symbol for the Jewish people. And so long as they're stunning, the Jewish people can't die. This is to a degree unrivaled by any other nation, a people whose survival is predicated on the school 
on how to study and life as a never-ending process of learning. Maimonides asks, when does the obligation to study begin? Is the obligation to learn? So when does, does this start? Does it start at 13, bar mitzvah, 12, bas mitzvah, 20, once you become a, an adult? Like, well, what's the uh, 21? Well, when do you start? Five, six, start training, says the Rambam. As soon as a child can begin talking, boom. When does it end, says Maimonides? When you die. It's a lifelong thing. And throughout the ages, Jewish communities made education the highest priority. Look at historical sources. Benjamin of Tadula, traveling in province in 1165, the year 1165, uh, reports that in Pascure, this is in the encyclopedia, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, P-O-S-Q-U-I-E-R-E-S, it had a town of 40 Jews, and there was a great yeshiva in the town. 40 Jews, they had a town. Marseille, Marseille. Marseille, um, where they had 300 Jews, was the city of, he writes, Gaonim, outstanding scholars and sages. 15th century Spain. Jews, by the way, in Spain, 15th century, that was like constant persecution until they were eventually expelled. But uh, it was constant persecution. And in 1432, in the Validoid Sindad, Sindad? Validoid. I don't know what that is. But basically, in 1432, they established taxes. Jewish community established taxes on meat, wine, circumcision, wedding, and funerals. Why? Their own taxes to create a fund to establish schools in every single community where there were at least 15 houses. 15 houses. We're going to tax all meat, all wine, all weddings, any, any funds, our own taxes in order to fund schools. And phenomena like these could be found in virtually every single Jewish community throughout the Middle Ages. At a time when their neighbors were illiterate, the Jews lived the life devoted to study, gave their seats of honor by the eastern wall of the synagogue. Who got to sit front and row? First class wasn't the wealthy people, it was the scholars. A 12th century monk wrote it, had a diary. He was traveling a lot, one of Abelard's disciples, and he wrote that a Jew, however poor, if he had 10 sons, would put them all to letters. And not letters to education, not to gain as the Christians do, but for the understanding of God's law, not only his sons, but his daughters. 12th century monk reporting this. And the result here is a constant dialogue with Torah, with revelation. Because in, in study, the Jews found themselves, it wasn't just learning, processing, gathering new information, but entering a conversation, not only with the Torah, but with successive Generations of his commentators with Hillel, with Shammai, Rav, and Shmuel, Abai Rava, Rashi, Taisis, Rambam, Ramban, the Rajba, Kiveger, the Ksais, Shashmaita. At every single subject, on every single subject, they had access, and they have access. We have access to millennial heritage of wisdom. Wisdom that transcends landless, powerless. The Jewish people inhabited a mental universe where space and time were vast. And as each community, each generation adds its own chidushim, its own insects into the ancient text, we can feel that excitement of, of Sinai, the revelation, the newness. Judaism is, is not one of, of just like continuing revelation, but continuing interpretation. Interpretation. That with each generation, with each day, comes out a new idea in Torah, a new lens, a new depth. We quoted once from Ryan Holiday popular author today talking about how he doesn't understand people don't read more books like you have access to wisdom of of hundreds of thousands of years and in the jewish thing this is the tagline of the podcast right ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over three thousand years and we have access to those ideas 
every day. I remember reading once a great book. It's called, I forgot what it's called, by Rabbi Raskin. Rabbi Raskin used to be the rabbi in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Not Lower East Side, no, like Upper West Side. Like Lincoln, Lincoln Synagogue. He took over the Lincoln Synagogue, Lincoln Street Synagogue, a huge synagogue. Um, Rabbi Riskin. Riskin? Raskin? Riskin. Um, and he wrote a book about his memoirs, and he was talking about what what inspired him, what guides him through his rabbinic career, because it's often very stressful. It's often very stressful, because you have a lot of people that are coming to you, um, sometimes with, with like existential questions and things like that, that, that become, that you empathize and it becomes part of you, and, and you're dealing with their sorrow and their struggles. And also just a lot of administrative things, and you got to keep the... The bills are getting paid and you got to work out all different politics and drama between boards and between members and etc. Right? It has a lot of drama to it, a lot of stress associated to it. And he he asked, there was an old rabbi there, and he asked him, like, I'm thinking of going into the rabbinic career, but I'm nervous. I'm nervous about all the stress and anxiety. What should I do? And he says, let me tell you how I process it. He says, every day, my first thing I'm doing in the morning I'm learning Torah, and I'm not just learning Torah, but I'm I'm entering a whole new world, a whole new mind space. I'm here. I'm I'm engaged in dialogue between the greatest of Jews that ever lived, and I'm hearing what Rava says, and what Shmuel says, what Abayas says, what what the Pnei Yeshua says, what the Marsha says. I'm I'm entering into a whole new world, and in this conversation that that's so unreal and so believable and so unbelievable, so so, so incredibly deep. That, that that gives me that gives me energy to deal with whatever like throw at me whatever drama stress uh, pressure deadlines you want I'm 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 reduced I'm refilled and neither were Jews excluded from the wider currents of thought and and from the earliest times Torah drew a distinction between uh, or the earliest Torah scholars drew the distinction between Torah and Chachma Torah's Torah revealed truth and Chachma of wisdom. Wisdom, the universal property of mankind, could be acquired from any truth, from any source, right? So Rambam, for example, says, accept truth from whoever says it. Right? You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be saying a Torah idea for it to be true, right? Which is why the Jewish people have rightly realized and have never very rarely troubled by any apparent conflicts between science and religion because they realize that it's two separate domains, one is the study of the world of what is, Chachma of science, the world, and one is Torah of the world what ought to be. What to do with it? Okay, once you have the science, now how does how should that direct my behavior? The greatest rabbis were were often, very often, people of very wide humanistic learning. Rambam's first book was on logic. He wrote eight books on on medical. Medical textbooks, like deep, deep medical books. The Vilna Gon, the great Vilna Gon, wrote books on astronomy, on arithmetic. Yet the greatest object of the study, the greatest focus of all Torah learning, was on life itself, on living life itself, on live Torah. What became known very appropriately for people that was on a journey, on a spiritual journey, on a physical journey, halacha, the way, the way of life, the way to walk. Every aspect in life, not only religious, not only rituals, but business, commercial transactions, relationships between husband and wife, between parents and children, between neighbors, food, sex, 
all have its precisely calibrated laws, choreography of holiness. Fundamental idea is, and what's that of Judaism is that we bring Hashem into the world through our daily acts, through our interactions, through our regular things, precisely just as the book, the first book in the Torah, Genesis, portrays the drama in terms of a very ordinary lives, the lives of the patriarchs and matriarchs, that we resonate and relate through those, the home, the workplace, the marketplace, our religious arenas, no less than synagogues and the kotel. As uh, the late Shayo Libowitz put it, Judaism is a religion, not just of poetry, but of prose. And of course, this was always the message of Judaism throughout the ages. Look at the prophets. Amos, Hosea, Micha, Isaiah, Shayo. They all saw equity, generosity, justice, civility as the very test of, of life. Of, of life, that is, that, that's lived in response to the call of Hashem. And where they failed maybe to, to have it implemented on a societal level, the rabbis post, post the uh, temple's destruction succeeded. Succeeded. And it was as if the Jewish people, after having lost the temple, rebuilt in it, rebuilt it um, with deeds, with deeds instead of stones, with words instead of mortar. And in that way, the Shekhinah Hashem, Hashem's indwelling presence found its home in human lives. What's really remarkable is that the wins of the the achievements of the world of Torah were not only in the spiritual realm, not only, not only in the moral realm, but in the political realm. Because fashioning a society with equal access of human dignity was really fought for and won by the sages because the the axiom of democratic spirituality is always that if knowledge is power, then that distribution of power is going to be the central political issue that affects the entire structure of the society. So for for Torah, it wasn't only on the streets and behind barricades that the three great ideals that were later articulated in the French Revolution were brought out equality liberty and fraternity equality judaism is an egalitarian faith throughout the hierarchies that exist because you think of the hierarchies right kings and priests kings are rulers positions of power priests levites etc so you look at Mishnah and Perkei Avos. Mishnah says that there's three crowns. Shloisha Kesarim Hain. There are three crowns. Kesar Kahuna, Kesar Malchus, the Kesar Tyre. Kesar Kahuna, the priests. That's one hierarchy. Kesar Malchus, kingdom, King David and his descendants. The Kesar Tyre, Ilal Gabayim, whoever wants, come and take it. Kesar Torah, the crown of Torah, is open for anyone. In the halacha, this has a halacha legal status that if you have the high priest, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol versus somebody who is a Talmud Chacham but of ill-reputed background, somebody who's a mamzer, somebody who's a bastard, born out of wedlock, who gets precedence for honor, for Torah reading, for 
to lead the uh, Birkat Amazon, the Torah scholar, even though the background is much less elite than the high priest. Right? The implication that education, universal, universal education, signaled the end of dynastic elites that set in a, a hierarchy. So that's number one, the equality. Number two, the liberty. Liberty was always really a challenge to achieve, and a uniquely Jewish challenge since the since the exodus from Egypt, because freedom on one hand, you want to be free from the bondage of, of any oppressors. So how do you combine freedom with being a part of something, being part of individual and being part of a community? How do you combine liberty and law? Because laws seem to be constraints on freedom, unless you happen to desire the laws. So really that turns out then that liberty is a problem of education. Because if law and desire conflict, then you're not going to be experiencing freedom. If the law conflicts with your desires, then you're going to feel constrained. Only if your desires have been formed and shaped beyond your mere selfishness, and they, they come together with the common purpose, do you experience law as freedom itself. As King David writes, I will walk in freedom, for I've sought out your law. What Torah there is teaching is that the freedom itself is when you buy into the system. The Torah says that the uh, luchos, the luchos was the symbol of the luchos, the tablets that Moshe brought down from Sinai. Because the, the word for the luchas, the letters were charis al-aluchas. They were free. They were free on the tablets. The only person who's free teaches the Torah is somebody who is embroiled in Torah, who's engaged in Torah. And uh, at the surface, it seems like a, a contradiction and a paradox. Because if you're engaged in Torah, that means you can't do certain things. So what does it mean that the only the free person is? Because only when you truly have channeled your desires above your selfishness and it's bought into a, a building something beyond yourself that everybody else is also buying into, could you truly have freedom? Only when education is engraved into the law of the hearts of its citizens do we experience collective freedom. So that's equality, that's liberty. What about fraternity, the third ideal that was later articulated by the French. How do you create fraternity, friendship in a people? And Judaism's answer, the rabbinic answer was by translating conflict into argument, making the conflict into an argument and taking the argument itself and making it the pulse of the intellectual life. The entire Talmud, look at the Talmud, it's an anthology of arguments for the sake of for the sake of heaven. They're arguments to get to the truth. So instead of internal conflict, which brought disaster upon the Jewish people, the rabbis took this agreement and relocated it to the, to the base madrash, relocated it to the harusa, harusa, an engagement of, a, of, of sharply conflicting views, strong individuals, for the sake of study, for the sake of learning new things, for broadening your horizons. So to sum up, that's the spark, that transformational mo moment 
Jewish history. Give me Yavne and its sages. Give me the yeshiva. Give me the intellectual life. Give me the book. Uh, not only is something ancillary to the person, but it, the, the very essence, the blood itself, the life itself. I'll continue tomorrow drawing the contrast between uh, ideas and truth that's thought. For example, in philosophy, Greek philosophy, we think truth and truth lived, halacha, and the implications that that has. Ultimately, moving on to the question, what went wrong and why is assimilation so strong today? And why is there so much under-regard or undervalue um, the, the shadow that's hanging over Jewish life today? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, and listen to the other episodes, please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.